I am watching him speak, addressing the nation. And where, from where does this despair come from that's rising in my heart? What is below that despair? It's maybe not who you were thinking. In 2008, I pressed pause on my career in mainstream environmental organizations to work for his election because here, for the first time, was a presidential candidate who was saying climate change out loud and calling on us to respond decisively. Two years later came the Gulf oil spill, the Deepwater Horizon accident. Here was a disaster resulting directly from extreme crude extraction and occupying public attention with ever-escalating estimates of how many millions of barrels of oil were still flowing and images of oil-soaked birds and ocean life. With the evidence of global climate change well established, a passionate, informed movement was ready to apply consistent supportive pressure. And through this, this tragedy might be transformed transformed into exactly the inciting event that would demonstrate the issue, make clear the impact of our choices, and finally brandish the message that we so needed to hear. The era of fossil fuels must be rapidly and decisively brought to an end. But in 2013, President Obama's emergency televised address to the nation while oil continued to flow came off to me as heartbreaking, disheartening, a bit crushing. He spoke of getting to the bottom of this, the need to improve standards, and the inspiring resilience of local fishermen. Putting aside my more generalized pain for the desecration of mountaintops, unfathomable species loss, the emptying out of forests and oceans, the horror of the animal food industry, and even just amongst us human, the gross injustices of, political, of, of pollution and extraction that disproportionately burdens communities of color. It was now as if my hope for national leadership at, at, for at least catastrophic climate change were themselves drowning in oil and salt water. I spent most of the hours on my retreat that summer giving as much kindness, space, interest, and attention as my practice would afford to what was emerging in this heart. In the silence of a meditation hall, I sat and listened. I sat and listened as dismay and broad-scale betrayal turned to anger, Anger turned to rage. I sat and listened as rage turned to regret. And this time to ancestral betrayal, then to guilt, which then turned to fear, a lot of fear. I sat and listened and let everything come. And all of these feelings ultimately opened up and yielded to a deep well of grief. This was perhaps what, what Martine Prechtel would call the unrequited heartbreak that would begin our courtship with the divine. 
the first grand step of becoming a whole person. A person who can toss, who can turn loss into grief and grief into a song of life-giving praise. This is the metabolization of grief into beauty, he says. What my practice with meditation, together with the insights of the Buddhist tradition, allowed on that retreat and continue to support for the work is never done, are a way to stay in meaningful contact with this reality, to stay open and to listen, to become neither overwhelmed nor disconnected by what I encounter and listen and instead bear witness as a form of response. And then finally, but again and again, to respond in a manner that I experience as my deepest expression of love and meaning. So what are these insights? What are these practices that I have found so helpful, both in my inner experience, but also informing my response to collective challenges like race and climate? I'll just name a few. The Buddhist path invites us to investigate our own experience, to trust this, this heart, this mind. With enough practice, we're promised that insight will be naturally revealed. Wisdom naturally arises. We're encouraged to investigate, to ask for ourselves again and again, what leads to more well-being and what leads to less? What leads onward? What connects and heals? What awakens? The Buddhist perspective provides insights into the dynamics of our suffering. So it's kind of like jumping ahead. This is what we think you'll find if you look. Of our discontent and our dissatisfaction with the way things are, of our fundamental angst, we find that we can find freedom and, transfer and transformation not by denying or distracting or pushing away that suffering, but by courageously and compassionately turning towards it. This is completely counterintuitive. Some difficult emotion, jealousy. Some person, Gary from accounting. I hope there's no Garys in the room. A group, oh, maybe you're not an accountant, so it's okay. <laughs> or a group of people, you fill in the example, show up and my strong and powerful impulse is to get rid of them. But the invitation of this practice is to slow down, to notice what's happening, to offer a cup of tea, attend and befriend. Beginning, because it's a practice, with the easy and the internal, and working our way up to the difficult and the external. From jealousy to Gary to white nationalists, we can build muscles of noticing, becoming curious, investigating with compassion. Because we are presented, aren't we, with these 
these moments that destabilize the heart, the acute Charleston, mudslides in Sierra Leone, and also the chronic structural racism, climate change. Can we slow down, notice what is happening, offer a cup of tea? We are invited to investigate even view itself to see the seer, the seen, and the process of seeing. Today, in this world, in, in these times, we might investigate dominant culture. The mind, that translates to investigating the mind of domination. How does this thing work? How does it do what it does? Seemingly innocent, it is a view that habitually centralizes me, this one here, and a world that is in relation to that and often in service for or against that. The question, how can this serve me? Or when identified at the level of family or community, how does this serve me and mine? This mic, this lectern, they are reduced to the role that they play for me. When we do this a lot, we do it habitually, and we reduce people and planet. Other as object is the view and objectification. Can you see that 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 moment of objectification enables all the harm that may flow. Use, abuse, disappearing, annihilation, all of that becomes possible with that first moment of first separation and then reduction. It can be gross or subtle, but notice how pervasive and on scale something is wrong when we reduce a forest to mere timber. To our left-leaning organizations, we reduce sometimes people of color to emblems of our diversity. I objectify myself when I am nothing if not achiever. This is the dominant way of looking at the world, including the internal world. Is this so? Must this be? Is it the only way to view? An alternative. All others are subject, possessing of Buddha nature, autonomous, mysterious, irreducible, sacred, unfathomable. Even this lectern. Unfathomable. Practice in nature is so powerful, right? We're learning about how important it is for kids and ourselves, how much well-being naturally arises when we go into the natural, what we call the natural world. I was trying to break that dichotomy earlier with you. If we go into the, 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 the world that is not constructed by humans, 
Maybe that's so powerful because it interrupts this function view, this objectification. Things and being exist more obviously on their own terms, for their own sake, with their own lives, beginning, middle, end. We miss the whole thing. It's not about us. There's something in that that heals. That's so interesting. In this, in seeing how we see, we can train ourselves to see what is unseen. We start to see the world differently. So our opportunity is to cultivate presence, to train the heart, the mind, and suspend notions of past, present, and future, any other place but right here. And to do this, this is so critical, with an atmosphere of warmth and an attitude of listening and curiosity. Judgment so easily comes in. I'm not doing it right. I don't know how to do this. This is boring. (laughs) So easily comes in. Can we stay? Here's boredom. Okay, what is boredom? What does boredom feel like? We find this is both, for most of us, not all of us, for me, really hard and enormously helpful. We are teaching ourselves a fundamental kindness to tend and befriend whatever arises without a shred of judgment. With respect to climate change, this practice enables us to get out of our own version and I'm projecting a little bit here, that the, that the progressive left, are you guys in the progressive left? I think maybe. <laughs> version, our own version of denial. Are we climate denialists? No. But look closer. We can recognize and recriminate the right for this, but on the left, This denial takes the form of avoidance and distraction. Are we really acting as if we believe climate change is real? Connecting and allowing feeling means working skillfully with fear, anger, and grief, whatever arises. But without this larger view and an ample dose of positive uncertainty, we can find ourselves stuck in collapse, in rage, in cynicism. It's too late. We deserve it. Have you ever heard that? So our challenge is to connect with the reality, connect with the emotions that arise. This is information. See this as your heart's response to what it loves. Listen with kindness and interest and ask, importantly, what is needed. As we investigate our habitual way of looking at the way we objectify, 
Our opportunity is to practice a different view, to see subject, not object, to re-enchant the world and our relationship to it, to participate in mystery. In response to the sometimes overwhelming nature of this challenge, I remind myself constantly that I am in active cooperation with millions of beings around the world who are working to end harm, create new solutions, and transform consciousness. I imagine this room might have some devoting their careers to one of these domains, ending harm, creating new life-sustaining solutions and awakening consciousness. Paul Hawken, um, I think it's the blessed unrest, puts forward this model that we are all part of Gaia's immune system. And like the immune system, there is no central organ. The, The circulatory system has a central organ. The nervous system has a central organ. The immune system has no central organ. Thyroid is part of it. White blood cells are part of it. The tongue that detects something poisonous is part of it. The smell. This is all noticing threat. And there's no master coordinator. So this idea that the left can't get its act together because we have no central platform and, you know, is that what's needed? Or do we all need to follow the longing, heed the call of our hearts? because we are getting, in some ways, sacred information. So instead of recruiting, we have to be careful here, because we can recruit everyone to the climate emergency. (laughs) But for some people, this isn't the biggest emergency in their lives. And we are a part of a team. That's what that Gaia model is calling us to see. That if you're working on structural racism or gun control, I bow to you for when the storms of climate change come, a more healthy and just society with fewer guns needs to be there to respond. So we're actually working together. You're working on gun control. Thank you for working on climate change. There is a positive uncertainty here. The truth is we don't know what happens next. While the climate is already changing, we don't actually know what is possible, what we will do next, what you as individuals, as families, as the Washington Ethical Society, what you will foster and manifest. But will what we do make a difference Can we save this thing? It's a very natural question. But that teaching about interbeing, about dependent co-arising, says that how much awareness, kindness, and interest, what courageous response we bring to that next matter moment matters so much. It conditions reality. This is the butterfly effect. Systems theory, right? We don't actually know.
I would say it does matter so much. And isn't, aren't we asking in some ways the wrong question? We want to be secure, strategic, sure, but are we deciding whether or not to love? Will we make it? Is it too late? Will it make a difference if I try? Perhaps these aren't the most helpful questions. But to be sure, this business of climate change is incredibly challenging emotionally. Was the human heart designed to be able to handle not just its own death, but a larger death? Maybe we can do it. I have found it essential to cultivate a view and a way of being that is both wide and tender. To embrace the paradox, the creative tension between complete acceptance and the want for change. The only way for me is to stay open and connected, to see everything as sacred. That is, to imbue with autonomy, mystery, and meaning. I am in active relationship with that, appreciating, bathing in joy and beauty as vital nourishment. So yes, I will be going down to observe the total eclipse. I've watched my carbon budget so carefully and I I have to decide. It's like, this is the math, right? Is there a right way to do it? I feel like as long as I'm really working hard to figure out and putting my values at the front and making sure that this being is nourished for this really difficult task, okay. Off to North Carolina. I also try to remind myself to practice contentment. When we look at a tree, and do we say that it's flawed, its efforts incomplete? In a culture that says we can never have or be enough, it is quite radical to appreciate the extent of my control and to love all my efforts to love. We are earth beings. We have with us here this vast complexity of dynamics and processes and consciousness. Everything on this blue-green earth is giving, giving, and giving without borders. See that spinning earth there in the darkness? It is all holy, calling us to relate to receive with gratitude and awe and to give with love and release. So I'll close with this meta prayer, meta meaning loving kindness, a sort of practice of the heart. It's like a little workout for the heart you can do every day. Let's practice your meta. May all places be held sacred. May all beings be cherished. May all injustices of enslavement, oppression, and devaluation be righted, remedied, and healed. May those captured by hatred 
be freed to the love that is their birthright. May those bound by fear be released to the safety of understanding. May those weighed down by grief be given over to the joy of being. May those lost in delusion find relief in the path of clear seeing. May all wounds to forests, rivers, deserts, oceans, all wounds to Mother Earth be lovingly restored to bountiful health. May all beings everywhere delight in birdsong and blue sky. May all beings abide in peace and well-being, awaken and be free. Thank you for your attention, your patience, your warm welcome for what showed up in front of you today.